if you are brave enough to really go into that story if it is and really allow yourself to feel and go like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Where's the end? How far can it go out? Sometimes, as I said, it can just poof away or it can at least become something that has an edge. All right, run it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I'm excited to be sharing another story with you today, one that is close to a lot of our hearts, uh, particularly those of which who live in Australia and are familiar with the bushfires that basically tore apart our entire country earlier in 2020, just before COVID hit and left a lot of people uh, in a very difficult situation. And Today, I'm interviewing uh, a lady named Amre. Uh, She explores the impact of the bushfires, but as importantly, she explores her relationship with her own mother, um, being from German background, and the impact that the war has had on her mother and subsequently her own life. Um, She also explores her relationship to parenting, and how much joy that brings and how committed she is to being a good mom. Um, She talks about how to build resilience and disrupt the victim cycle by exploring and owning and releasing pain. And we also get into a bit of a conversation around ego death. So um, how she had to confront her identity as a dancer and overcome that even in the most... Um, confronting situation of questioning her own life and how she got through that. Uh, There's some mild trigger warnings in reference to trauma um, and also in relation to her reference to her suicidal ideation. So if this is triggering for you, I would encourage you to go slow and perhaps listen to the episode with someone But as always, go slow, go strong, one day at a time. We're all on the journey. Well, um, I want to know about your your first experiences. Can you tell me what's your first childhood memory? (laughs) I I don't know how old it was, but I think I must have been still in a you know a baby crib, so maybe a year or something. And it was New Year's Eve, and I remember that my parents promised me they'd wake me up for the fireworks, and they didn't. And I woke up at some stage, and I stood in the crib going, "Why you did not wake me up. You did not wake me up. And I was so pissed (laughs) off. And somehow I managed to climb or fall up. Yeah, I'll bet. So, yeah, that's my first memory. (laughs) So two things I'm getting from you straight away. One is you're incredibly determined. (laughs) Yeah. And the other is... If you set an expectation, you better damn well meet it. Otherwise, you're you're crawling out of the crib. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but I hope yeah, that, that I fair? do that for myself and for others. So, you know, I have very high expectations of oh. myself and others, but I'm trying, you know, to keep my promises and stuff like that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's beautiful, and I, I can I can feel your energy is is one of a leader. Um, ha, have you considered yourself a leader? It's funny. It's one of those things I never try to be, but somehow I always end up in situations where I have to be. You know, I have to set up. I have mm. to do the work, and um, it became really apparent when. So I've got three kids. They're now four, twelve, and fifteen. And when the first two were smaller, the moment I didn't have my shit together, the whole family went uphill. Like it just everything went to shit. So I just knew I had to do, you know, I had to do my yoga. I had to, I don't know if you know what NET is. It's some um, sort of muscle testing type thing where, mm-hmm. you know, you bring up all the shit and you deal with it. But if I didn't take the time and the money to sort my shit out, the whole family went downhill. Um yeah, so I, I knew very, very quickly that where I'm at influences everyone around me. And then, of course, if I want to do a job like teaching yoga, if I bring my shit in the room, everyone else is going to feel that. They might not know that in their head, but they feel it, and therefore their experience will be different. Right, yeah. So I think from that I, I agree that a lot of energy is contagious, and particularly when you're – a mom and a business leader and in roles of influence, I think that energy is even more porous or expansive and infectious. And so we need to be really conscious of our energy. Um, were, were you a spiritual kid growing up? Yes and no. That's a, my dad was supposed to be a Catholic priest and then he met my mom. <laughs> Didn't become a Catholic priest because he can't have kids and stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And he very much, you know, he believes in God, but he doesn't believe in the church. And I think I very much have inherited that sort of belief system that I certainly believe and I've always believed in, you know, whatever you call it, a God or a universal force or whatever you want to call it. But I do not, I like, I certainly don't believe in the church as an institution or something like that, if that makes sense. So my whole life has been, there's definitely something, but I think the more rules it has, the less I believe it works in that system, basically. Sure. And speaking of your parents, um, are they Australian? What what ethnicity do you and they identify with? I'm German. Well, I've been here for 20 years now, but I was born in Germany. Um so they're still all over there, which is at the moment quite tricky. That is probably my biggest emotional learning curve at the moment out of all that's happened this year. But, you know, I can't just jump on the plane and go and, you know, be with them and look after them and stuff because they're both nearly 80. So part of how I set up my work was that I would go and travel to Europe, you know, three, four times a year and work there so I could see my family so that my kids can experience, you know, the other parts of the world. That was a really big part of it and it's all been scratched so that's um interesting yeah yeah i'll bet that's incredibly hard having loved ones in another country where you feel stuck and powerless to be able to be there for them and them for you um so i want to acknowledge that that's that's incredibly difficult um have your parents been a big part of your life for most of your life uh, my mum's been mentally ill for a while, so it's been for a very long time uh, more like um, I should be going, you know, and she she's still my mum and that sort of process in, in my mind. But my dad is, you know, I don't think I could wish for a better person to have a dad. He has been through 
more pain than I know in anyone else personally. You know, he lost his father when he was three weeks old. He grew up in the war with four other brothers. His mum got, you know, assaulted by the Russians. She nearly committed suicide. Then they're many staff. Then, you know, that goes on. Then he came, became a spy spied by the stars. He nearly got killed by them twice. Then my mum left him for a fair with 30 years. She had affairs on the side. And he never complains. To this day, he never complains. And he wow. really lives the live like if I could become like him living my life, he has hardly anything. And yet when the fire, you know, took the studio, he was the first person that tried to get money together to give me a loan so I could rebuild the studio, even though he virtually he, – he drives a 30-year-old car. He's renting a little tiny flat. He has – Nothing, but whatever he has, he will share. Wow. Sounds like an amazing man, an incredibly resilient man. What What do you think about his personality or what quality that has enabled him to cope so well with such extreme, extreme adversity? I think he has a very deep-seated ability to find something good and need very little. So he's, for example, he always wanted to have lots and lots of kids, but my mum didn't. So he ended up having only three and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't exactly planned. It was an accident when she wanted to apologise for something. But yet this, what he's got with us three, that's become his life. You know, him, us being healthy is all he needs and then he has, you know, he he knows what he needs. So he needs to go for walks, he needs some music, he needs some quiet, and he makes sure he's got that. And ab- above, above this basics, he's just there for others. You know, he will never push himself on other people, but he's always there when they need him. So it sounds like he he really scales his life back to the f- – he knows what's important, I guess. Yeah. And he's super, super focused on knowing what his priorities are and expecting very little of others and almost being in service to people around him so much that it gives him the meaning and purpose that he needs to get through tough times. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. And and your mom, you said that she suffered from mental illness. When, what age were you when you first realised that that was happening? Probably only about... I mean, people have been saying it, but I didn't really believe it until maybe five, six years ago. And she's got a thing, um, it's called the lost generation syndrome. So it's a rather new thing where, so she also grew up in the war. Her father got, you know, killed, her mother got raped. And because of that trauma that, so the theory is because the child was in the womb and the bombs fell and all that, you know, the angst of the mother basically got in the DNA. Like there's something wrong from the very beginning. Mm. And they seem to be functioning quite well throughout their lives, have kids, do their work. And when the kids leave home and they go towards retirement, it becomes really bad. So there's a lot of hoarding, a lot of the world owes me, a lot of, you know, like trying to grab onto life. Um, so it's a little bit like a narcissistic personality, but it's got a very specific slant because of this fear that's embedded in their body. So yeah, it's, I guess it got worse and worse throughout her life and to a point now where Mm. there's very little left of her beyond this story. 
Wow, that's a very powerful last sentence that you said just then. There's very little left of her besides this story. Is the I do believe in epigenetics, DNA changing through trauma. When do do you remember a memory the first time where you noticed the behavior in her or the way that she was acting or speaking to you, where you were like, something's changed about my mum. I think when when I first I was in my teens and I realized that she was jealous of my relationship with my father. And I was like, but I'm your daughter and he's your husband. Like you should be really grateful that I'm having a great relationship with my father. You never had a father, wouldn't you? Mm. You know, wouldn't you wish for your daughter to have a great relationship with her father? And from that point on, that was just like, oh, there's there's something not quite right. I mean, I didn't have words. I didn't really. It was just a feeling of maybe a little, like a little tiny step back from her in caution. Like, of course, there's she's always going to be my mum, and I always going to love her. But the difference of trust in you, like with my dad, I know until the day he dies, he will be there for me. I could call him at two a.m. in the morning if I needed to. And it would be totally fine. It would be there for me. Whereas at that point, I realized that she was there for herself. Mm. You know, I was part of her story. What's that like for you as a child who, you know, in, in in our hard wiring, we're supposed to look to our caregiver for soothing and protection and they have my back and an island of safety. When when you first realized, whoa, my mum's not that island anymore, what was that like for you? It was hard, but luckily I, I had my dad and I had a really amazing godmother and two of my brothers. They're, you know, they were like my – they're 10 and 14 years older, so it was very much like they slipped into that role for me. So while it was hard, it wasn't nearly as hard as it could have been, I think. Um, but mm. the prop, the bigger problem was that I always wrote that now as a mum, I don't want to become like that. You know, like <laughs> I keep yeah. checking myself, am I doing that, am I doing that, am I doing that? And then my dad said something to me maybe about 10 years ago that really just hit home and he said, look, you only need to get one functional parent to become a functional person. It's true, scientifically true as yeah. well. So... That for me um, always says, okay, you know, it is it is what it is and just be grateful you've got one great parent. <laughs> yes, there is, again, that seems like his attributes of seeing the positive in things despite the circumstances has come to the fore yet again in a, in a great way. Um, for you, do you think that obviously you can see that your mum has a story and a reason why she is, do you think it's hard and, and frustrating and challenging when you see your dad who has had a different past but probably equally traumatic treat you well and your mum not? And does part of you have sympathy and empathy for her and say, I see you as an adult, not just my mother who's been through shit and I get that you're feeling like this and then another part of you feel contradicted or torn or confused because you're like, but my dad's also been through stuff and he doesn't treat me like that look there's definitely that part but I think it's come to the point where 
I have reconciled the fact that I can't reconcile with my mum. You know, like for so many years, I can remember one time, maybe, you know, about 10 years ago, I was at her place and we virtually talked all night through about like a thing that kept happening, kept happening, why she could feel that I didn't open up to her. And so I tried to explain why. And I felt like we'd come to this point of her actually understanding what the problem was. And we went to sleep mm. for two hours and I got up again and it was like it's never happened. So I think I'm not saying no one can ever be cured from that. That's what I'm saying. But I think for her and for me and the energy and time that I would have to put in, I just don't think there is there's even a, a search for healing on her part, if that makes sense. It, or, or whether she is willing to put in the effort that would be required to smash through these almost cement-like walls that her brain has put up to defend herself from pain. Yeah, exactly. That for both you and her and the whole family unit, the amount of shedding that could happen could happen, but the person who's going through it needs to be willing, able and committed, yeah. which is hard when you have a traumatic background and, as you say, your word, narcissism, is the defense of actually a fragile ego, believe it or not, as it presents in power and confidence, it's the, the complete opposite. So maybe there's the glass that sits underneath that cement wall is too fragile that she doesn't even want to go there. And so it sounds like you've made kind of peace with that. Um, despite how hard it is being distant and vacant from your mum. Yeah, it's it's become more challenging of, of being okay to be, you know, like when we go there, I'm sort of fine for the first 24 hours and then I can just feel it rising. It's all this, can't you just see it once? I'm like, okay, just breathe. Yeah. No, you can't change it. So it's become more challenging of, can I just stay neutral and, you know, give her some compassion and step back from the attacks that are coming, you know, every two seconds and just go, she's just sick. That's all it is. You know, because, of course, with my students or whatever, just, it's yeah. easy. It's, oh, it's not always easy, but it's a lot easier because you just go, that's your stuff. Just I hope you can work through it, but that's your stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I always say in, in our workshops that we run, um, this whole connection, conversations, attachment shit gets way harder the closer you get to someone, yep. which is this irony in the brain. And you're like, hey, this is the more important it gets, the better I should become at this. But it's actually sometimes quite the opposite. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, people who have, you called it a, a personality type disorder or spectrum disorder, and it, whether we use that language or other language such as, um, issues with relating to others versus issues that is more contained to self, i.e. in science we call it ego syntonic and ego dystonic, which is um, this: I have this experience and it feels bad, I want it to go away, for example, anxiety. Whereas with personality disorders it's kind of the one main cluster set where you get um, sometimes no internal pain, only external pain. So anxiety, depression, there are things in you being like, this feels horrible, I need to go fix this. But with personality disorders, there can sometimes be so many layers of defense that you yourself don't feel bad. It's the collateral damage of, to everyone else. That's the reason why people with personality disorders end up in therapy. Not because they're like, God, I feel shit, I want to feel better, I got to go get help. It's because someone says, if you don't go there, you will. I won't be, I can't be in your life. Um, do you think, and so whether we put that label or diagnosis on it or not, because 
I'm not a fan of, of making someone feel wrong for that because a lot of people with personality disorders have a story or a traumatic background or whatever. But let's just call it an experience. Do you think her experience has been one where she herself is carrying pain and anxiety and depression where it's bothering her on a daily basis or do you think most of it's just causing the family issues? Yeah, I think it's the second one because um, she, I think she's just she used to be a real social butterfly, you know, this gets people all excited and I guess she's still got that now to some degree um, and she's just being able to fish her way through and just talk to the people that she knows. So funnily enough, she's a psychologist um, and, of course, she, no only goes, she only goes to the psychologist that tell her that she's right, right? So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, she's gotten so good at, you know, swimming the way to just the people that she wants to talk to and only the people that are going to support her story and never going to the, you know, back to the person that might question her. And it was funny because both mm-hmm. my parents worked at a um, family counselling type job for quite some years. And I remember my mum saying once, yeah, your dad is just not a very good counsellor because some people he only needs sees once or twice and then never again. I'm like, isn't that the point? Like, wouldn't you want that? Like, you know, like Yeah, make yourself me, redundant. Yeah. <laughs> that is for me the the real gift. If someone can like I was at an osteopath the other day and she fixed something that it anyway, long story, and she just said, I don't think you need another appointment. You know, if it still bothers you in two months, maybe. I'm like, that's what I want. You know, you're so good that you yeah. help people just that little bit and then they can help themselves and that's good not to make them dependent on you. Yeah, and they're not just there for the money. Yeah. I don't think she's there yeah. for the money. She just Agreed. wanted to have people dependent on her. Basically all the friends she's got left oh, are yeah, just totally. ex-clients. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, It's funny, you know, the two things that you've said so far around like um, your mother having a, like seeing psychologists who are going to only enforce the narrative that she wants to hear and B, um, having a situation in which she avoids confronting her own demons and you feel like it's two steps forward, like you're like, oh, my God, I just got a breakthrough and then like one step back and it's like overnight things just reset. Those two core characteristics of the enforcing the story and, oh, my God, we've made progress, no, we haven't, I've experienced with someone who also is sounds similar not in terms of background but in terms of presentation and personality and it can be um, infuriating and exhausting Thankfully for me, the difference with my person was they were able to recognize it and we finally got through the layers that we needed to and they said, you're right. And that took decades. <laughs> and not you're right because that makes yeah. it seem like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was the winner. Is in like the world is right. I, I can now see that. And to their credit, they put their hand up and, and the last few years have been doing the work, but it takes time. Yeah. It really does take time. And, look, I've been through something like that myself where so in my first marriage, I basically married my mother, but um, and we're nice. fine now, but that is a whole other story. <laughs> but he's got an amazing yeah. ability in seeing seeing through people. So he would be someone that could tell you, you know, 
you've got this issue and that issue and that's what's happening and this is going to happen. And um, there was a point, I think, where I started to feel unloved or unworthy or whatever within the relationship and then I put all my energy into my work. And he basically said to me, if you keep doing that, you will have no relationship with our, with our daughters. And at that time it was cruel and it was looked used as a dagger to hurt me, but still eventually I was able to look at it and say, okay, that and that and that and that is your story and it doesn't belong to me, but this in there actually is really true and I have to fix it. So, you know, without that, I could have easily gone down the path that my mum went down of, you know, trying to become even better at her job and even more important there and get all the laurels and then, you know, yeah, creating that same sort of story. So I know what you mean, but it, it takes a lot of courage to go, oh, fuck, I really, really, really messed that one up. How did you do up. that? That's what I want to know. How did you do that? I cried a lot, first of all. Um, and then expression. I had, I don't know if you ever heard of a course. It's a self-development course called Avatar. Anyway, it's um, no. It's funny enough where I met my ex-husband, but there's a lot of really, see, I like simple. I like simple things. And um, the basic course of that course is really simple exercises where, you know, you just walk and you think, you know, what's worse than that or what's my partner's story or so a lot of integrity exercises and looking at yourself and writing down. And my best friend at the time had done the course as well. So nearly every night I took the dog and the baby in the pram and we would walk around the park in Melbourne and we'd do these exercises. So basically just taking my part of the story, my responsibility, sorting out my shit in my little tiny thing. So I would hardly ever engage with him ever. Um, like he wouldn't fight or anything, but I was just kept trying to clean my little, you know, my little courtyard so that my energy at least didn't, you know, I wouldn't, I really believe in physical and emotional health being related. And I know when I don't deal with something emotional, it always manifests as something physical, you know, an injury or whatever. So I just didn't want to go down that path. And that, yeah, I guess that's how I dealt with it. I just kept like, how can I change that? How can I take responsibility? How can I own it? And how can I change it? So to me, what I'm hearing is that there was first a an awareness and then the I think the biggest leap or the biggest jump that you made that is the scariest and not a lot of people do is how can I accept some of this? Like how can I feel it? Um, I heard Tyra Brock say in a talk actually last night, um, and I might screw this quote up, but as best as I can, it was something like the single greatest question we can ask ourselves as a human is what is preventing me from feeling this? Yeah. And I think that to me, mental health or therapy or healing is all around feeling. You have yeah. to feel to heal. I, I agree. Because ultimately... Ha- how, how, how do you what what is happening in the brain if the situation has still happened how come some people can feel better about it and quote unquote get over it and others don't well then that makes me think well existentially what is getting over it yeah. because the situation still happened the memory still exists so that's to me the definition is fundamentally changing your relationship to something that did exist but and then changing that in a different way so okay well then ask again why how does that happen yeah. and i think the concept or the word processing 
really means feeling in a non-attached or non-suffering way anymore. And, and so we we have to get in there to get out of it. <laughs> and it's funny because there's the um, have you heard of the book Radical Forgiveness? I've heard of Radical Acceptance. I haven't heard of rad- Radical Forgiveness. Yeah, well, I mean, this is was another thing that I did, and it's a very practical book. Basically, also you know, like basically accept it's your shit. It's there for a reason. Feel it, let it go. And um, one of the things you know, there's like a little tape that goes with it like a 10 minute meditation thing that when shit comes up you basically can address it straight away and the very first step is like feel it don't try to rectify it don't try to talk it away let allow yourself to be the victim feel the whole thing go to the outermost limits and then you start the process through it right so but i really believe if you don't let yourself sit in it first and often for me, it feels like if you really try to go to the, you know, the outermost limits of whatever pain that is, sometimes it just goes, poof, and it's gone. I think it's our fear of yeah. actually feeling it that sometimes stops us from fixing it or not fixing it, but, you know, letting go of the attachment and the power Breaking it has over us. Yeah. Hundred percent, and that brings me to step three that you did. Step one was awareness. Step two was a willingness to feel it, and step three is. I'm going to now work out what's mine and what's not mine. That's a very, very, very important filtering process because sometimes we can get there and feel it and then actually take the wrong story away from it and double down on the pain accidentally unless we filter first and go, okay, what what can I own? What don't I own? Put everything in a row, work out, and then implement an action that that narrative shift of I'm going to change as a person in my belief system, in my values, in my behavior, that's step four. So I'm just playing back to you what you already did, which sounds like it's working really well. Yeah. Well, I think otherwise you just end up the victim again. You know, if you then, and I was there, you know, like you then feel so shit about what you've done that you get really down and then you really should around to be around and then you get sick, you know, like you have to actually go, okay, I did shit. I'm really sorry for it. And now I'm going to move on and try to do it not again. Yeah, um, totally, totally, totally. Because we can, we're a victim, man. That's one of the most toxic mindsets you can be in. And I used to be in that mindset a lot. And I had to do a lot of work to realize and reown yeah. stuff and also hand a bunch of stuff away as well. Yeah. Which it sounds like you've done. Um, so. I really appreciate you giving me some background and context with the relationship with your parents, which has obviously shaped who you are today. And I want to know a bit more about you. Has yoga been your lifelong career? Um, I started as a dancer. So back in Germany, I studied dance. My best friend there was from Melbourne. Um, And back in that mindset, like I always wanted to come and visit Australia, but I just didn't think I could stop training for six weeks. It was like, you know, death sentence. So I said, okay, I want to come to Australia when you go back, but I have to train. Anyway, long story short, I got a scholarship for VCA in Melbourne. I did another bachelor there. Um, then I had my first. How old were you there? Uh, came over here when I was 19, I think, 18 or 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did another bachelor and then I had my first kid, which I, by the way, I thought I could never have kids because I had hypothermia when I was little. So when I was suddenly pregnant, it was like, well, I'm going to have the kid, clearly. You know, clearly I'm meant to have a kid. So I never went to a doctor with all three kids, never went to a doctor, never. They just, you know, it's like, well, if I'm meant to have kids, I'm meant to have kids. Um, after I had her, <laughs> I went back to dance for a little while, but it was just one of those things. I was working with a choreographer 
and you know every hour away from a newborn is is big as a mum. And then after I think six months, she just decided she didn't like the piece anymore and threw out everything we'd done and started again. And I just grabbed my bag and walked out. And it wasn't like I didn't love dance anymore, but it was just like, for me, with a baby, trying to make money as a career in Australia, it's not going to work. You know, there's, there's just not a good career in Australia. You know, so few people can actually make a living, yet alone having a family life as being a dancer. Um, and I'd already been practicing Bikram yoga at that stage. And so I'm there lost, sort of, you know, making coffees, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And the studio there said, look, we really need another full-time teacher. Why don't you go do that? And I'm like, well... It's better than making coffees forever. And, um, mm-hmm. but the really the background story was, oh, well, if I'm a teacher, I'm going to get free classes forever. So, since I want to do that forever, I might as well do that for a little while and then I can see what I'm going to do. And two for one, two for one, and came back. And yeah, I've basically have, you know, been feeding the family of teaching yoga for the last 20 years or 17 years or whatever. Um, but I never, I never thought actually enjoyed teaching before that I used to teach ballet to kids and I hated it because it was only like I felt like the kids were there because the mum wanted to have Saturday morning off not because I wanted to learn ballet um with funny enough with Bikram have you ever done Bikram it's horrible like it's in a hot room you sweat you feel like shit but yeah you feel good afterwards (laughs) um but the big thing is that and that's the great thing here in this little rural area we are people don't come because they want to see him with a yoga mat they come because it fixes their body or it fixes their mind or it fixes their heart. And it's so hard, but most people, there's something like it makes the other 22 and a half hours of my life better. So for me to be able to facilitate that for people without, uh, and this is just me, I think in our Western world, there's way too much talky, 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 as in, you know, talk about your problems 50,000 times. I think, and it's interesting after the fires here, you can see how some people, it's like they're addicted to talking about that story over and over, but they don't go to counsel to actually work through it. They just tell every person they see on the street the same story again. And for me, that's like building a new pathway. You know, you're now actually creating a pathway that relives that trauma over and over again. Whereas if you go to class and you focus on something else and you just make your body feel better, there's like this little poof, 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 and suddenly, you know, some of that fear can be gone. And because it's virtually twice in my life, I was that suicidal. And without this yoga, I wouldn't be here. Like that's not just a fairytale story. It's actually what happened. And that's why I'm like now I couldn't. I could virtually not imagine my life without yoga. I, I don't know what to do. It didn't matter how much money I had in the world, I was still practicing and teaching yoga. It's just what I'm meant to do. So it's what you're meant to do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. I'm very grateful that the universe has blessed you with that gift because you're definitely someone that we want to have around in this world. Um, can you tell me uh, if you're if you're comfortable? What was the first time where you felt like your life couldn't go on and why? So with my ex, and as I said, it's all fine now, but back then uh, I was in Melbourne. Uh, my older one was maybe two and, a half, two and a half years old and my younger one was maybe six months. And at that stage we had also had his two grandkids living with us. So suddenly it went from one baby to having four kids under five, the other kids were highly abused. You know, they were still 
they were stealing, they were still shitting their pants at four years old, they, you know, we had hardly any money. So it was just a really tough situation. And I kept thinking, well, it's just tough at the moment. So the reason why we don't have a lot of couple time is because, you know, we've got all these babies and kids and all this trauma, And but we were fine. It's just that. Um, well, it turns out we weren't fine. And um, I came home on my 30th birthday and he from work and he left a you know a letter on the table saying you know the kids aren't safe with you you're not present with us anymore it's all about your work I'm taking them away and that was it and I just broke down you know crying and I I figured out where he must have taken them so I rode there with my bicycle and I was sitting outside the door and I called and I could hear the phone inside you know ringing I said let me just say good night like let me just feed my baby you know my boobs are exploding and he didn't open the door and I kept knocking on the well anyway I was there until 4am and then I finally go up and I drove back home with the bicycle and I saw the truck coming and I'm like I just want to be run over now and that feeling of I want the easy way out I had once before that at her birth so I planned a home birth ended up emergency caesar um and at that stage I just thought so I was still in the ballet you know head and thought well if I have a caesar I will never dance again my life is over you know and I remember asking the staff at the hospital saying is the baby going to be fine you know, even, you know, if something happened to me, you know, would the baby be fine? And they said, yeah, the baby will be fine. And I remember very consciously saying, well, well, I can sort of check out then, you know, because the baby will be fine. I don't want to live anymore because, you know, my, my life is ruined now. I can't dance anymore. And I flatlined and apparently my ex just yelled at me and said, don't you dare leave me alone with this baby. And I came back too. But this guilt of, you know, I want the easy way out because I don't want to deal with what I have to deal with now with this broken body and, you know, how to, you know, how's my ego going to get over, you know, a, a, a broken body or not having the career I wanted or all of that. And then in that moment when I saw the truck coming, I had that same feeling of, oh, I just want, I just want to get hit over now so I don't have to deal with all that shit that my life's become. And then I saw the truck's like, just think about your girls. Do you have, you've got two kids. Do you really want them? to have to grow up without a mum just because you can't deal with this shit. And so, you know, I sort of pulled over quickly with the bike. But still, like if I hadn't had that yoga to go to every day to practice, to look at myself and deal with myself and start to be okay with, you know, loving myself took a while, but to be okay with who I was and to be able to go, well, I can still teach classes. I'm able to keep my shit out there. And that really helped me, you know, to be able to go, okay, I've done shit. I really have done shit there, but I can help people. You know, I think it really helped me to go, I'm worth something even though I've done something that's not good. Mm. Wow. Very moving. And there's about a trillion things I want to touch on. But I think the most important one is that in the moment where you felt your most low, you went back to your why. You went back to your why, which was yoga and children. Yeah. It's So how do we give people more whys? 
Well, you know, a really tough one, and people will probably not want to hear this, and I didn't want to hear it at the time, but a good friend of ours committed suicide um, maybe a year before this all happened. And I talked to my dad, because I always talked to my dad, but it's all getting too much, and he just said really cool, calm and collected, committed suicide is the most selfish thing a person can do. I'm like, what were you saying? You know, like they're in a really bad space. says, no, there's always someone. There's always someone you can call. There's always somebody that will listen to you. There's always a phone number you can call. If you let yourself slide down that far, you actually commit suicide. It's the most selfish thing to do because everybody left behind will have to deal with it much more than they are. And it just took me so long to to digest that and actually go, yep, there is definitely some truth. And I think that's where I could then switch around and go, come on, Emre, you will somehow get through this. You do have two kids. You decided to have kids. You can't just now jump off because it's the easy path out. You know, you have to actually just get your shit together and be there for them. And I think, and to, mm, you know, for people, I think one really, sorry. In, yeah, no, you go first. No, no, you're about to say something great. Keep going. Well, I think a really big part, and I, maybe I'm just saying that because I'm a yoga teacher, but I honestly believe that even if you feel completely shit and completely down and completely whatever, if there's something that moves your body that you can do, it will give you just that little tiny bit of breathing space. You know, it could be just going for a walk, going for a bike ride, sitting outside on the on the grass, going something like if there's something, if your body starts to move, just putting a little bit of tension in that, it gives you just that little gap of of space where something else can create. You know, I think the worst thing that people can do is just sit and get small and understand, you know, you, you, whatever you drink or you smoke or you do whatever you do to get numb. But if you start doing a little bit of something for this body that we've been given, you know, like it, it's what we've got. It's part of who we are at the moment in this lifetime. And if you start living a little bit for that, there's a little gap that can help us go somewhere else. And I think that's something that has been maybe mm. forgotten in our Western world because for lots of people it's not necessary, you know, especially at the moment where people can work from home. Like you can virtually roll out of bed or stay in bed all day long working and you forget this thing. This is, you know, I obviously believe that our soul or whatever you call it, that will go on whether the body is there or not, whether you commit suicide or not, it's still there. You might just have to deal with your mm -hmm. shit that you created. But our responsibility right now is to look after that too. If we look after that, then we can look after others. Then we don't become a burden, then become – but also you feel better, you know. So I think if if you're sitting in that space and just go, I just don't know where to start. It's just all too big. I don't know. I can't deal with it. Go for a walk. Just go for a walk, you know. And apparently there's been some study, my dad says, that if you have a friend and you want to talk to them about, you know, whatever you're going through, even if it's just your victim story, as victim as it can be. But if you walk and talk, it can get processed 10 times better rather than just sitting down and talking about it. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree with that. Uh, movement is an amazing way to move 
emotion, emotion, notice the motion part on that word, uh, around the body and out of the body. Uh, And I always say this doesn't click for some people until they've heard it a hundred times. An emotion cannot exist without a body to reside in. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that concept, when that finally clicked to me, I was like, holy shit. Because when I thought of emotions for forever, I thought they were in the brain. But then I was like, hold on, if I didn't have a body and I was just a brain, I wouldn't have an emotion. So therefore, the body plays a massive part in how I feel and my mood regulation. Um, And I think a lot of people think that taking care of your body is eating, sleeping and training. And it can be all those things. But to me, what a relationship with your body really means is I have an awareness of where my emotions present in different parts of my body. I, I can understand the different textures and intensities and the micro emotions that sit beside emotions in my body and I have the ability to then make peace with it, process it and let go of where the tension sitting inside my body. To me, that is movement of emotion yeah. and a way to do that can be physically to move your body. Yeah. Um, and for, what I heard from your story is that the reason why it felt so intense was almost like you had an ego death. You had an ego death of, I am no longer a dancer. I am no longer potentially a partner, you know, and so who am I? And the only part of your ego that was still alive and beating was, oh, I am a mother. And so that you were grieving. You were grieving your psychological survival and there was a lot of parts of you that, in the ambiguity of that, wanted to give up. And there was another part of you which was like there's enough of a narrative in the part of mother or yoga teacher or whatever that I'm going to hold on, nurture, grow, and breed. Um, And so I really hope that people who are listening to this, you might define yourself in one way, but there's so many more dimensions to you than just one thing. And so if one thing dies, it doesn't mean that you die. If your work dies, you don't die. And how do we create more worth outside of just physical things in the material world that are subject to weather changes? How do we create more worth in our heart and in our soul, in our relationships, in our, in everything? Um, anyway, that's enough about that. I have a question for you. Um, and thank you again for sharing something so personal. Um, yoga has been a massive part of your journey, but you briefly touched on the fact that you were actually part of the recent Australian bushfires, which everyone will know of uh, (laughs) because it swept global news pre-COVID about how significant the bushfires were. Can can you tell me a bit about the impact that they had on you? Yeah, so um, on, so we obviously 50, at the night it came through, the night before it was 50 kilometres away and even the fiery said, look, as long as you leave, if you want to leave, as long as you leave by tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, you'll be fine, right? So my husband said, look, I want to go to the bush block because there's an old, like the original old farmhouse that maybe one day we can renovate. But either way, we wanted to, you know, save it if we could. We had sprinklers on it, but he just said, look, I just want to be out there just in case. I said, okay, that's fine. So I was supposed to teach a 6 a.m. class. I had a friend come over and said, look, can you stay with the kids so I can get up at 5 and teach a class and come back so I don't have to wake them up? So they came over. I went to bed, I woke up at four and the whole town is basically on fire. Um, I didn't have a car and uh, the the friends that stayed with us wanted to leave. So I, me, the dog and the small kid 
smallest one evacuated to Birmingham. My bigger kids were with their dad and bigger, and Ben was my husband was at the at Waterloo, and then we were at Birmingham, and there was no phone. There was no nothing. There was nothing, you know, and I not, didn't know if anyone else was alive or whatever. And I was sitting in the evacuation center and I virtually had a dog asleep on one side and the baby asleep on the other side. And one of my students came over and they showed me a photo of the studio burning. And I'm like, oh. And I'd been clever enough to put all my personal possessions that meant something to me into the studio thinking that it's the middle of town. Surely that's the best place to be, right? Um but because I'd lost all my things twice already in my life, once then we left East Germany and then maybe had a flood, I was sort of like, well, it's only things will sort out. It's not so bad. But I had this moment of going, oh, mm. the studio burnt. Maybe that means I should get a job where I actually make some money. Because the day before, one of my students said she works at Coles stacking shelves on the weekends and she gets like whatever, 60 bucks an hour. I'm like, what? You know, so I've been teaching seven days a week for I don't know how long. And I'm like, I always make enough to feed the family, but it is always, you know, just, it's always just. So I had this very brief moment. And then virtually within half an hour, there must have been 20 of my students come to me because I'm still sitting on the floor with the kid and the dog asleep on me. And they go, Amma, you have to build that studio again. We have to have somewhere where you can process all this trauma. And I knew that at least half of them would have lost their house just from where they were living and stuff. And from that moment on, it wasn't even like I want to rebuild the studio because I want to do my job. It was like I have to rebuild the studio because this valley needs yoga. And if it hadn't been for that, I quite likely could have given up by now because I hate paperwork. Oh, my God, I hate grant applications and I just anything to do with you know, paperwork and applications and retelling your story 50 times because, of course, you never talk to the same person. Oh, but every time I was about to give up, like someone would call me, it's like, how is it going with the studio? I'm like, okay, fine, yeah, I'll sort it out. Um, <laughs> so I guess a little bit similar to the, you know, get your shit together, your mum, it's that same thing. Yeah, you lost your studio, whatever. Just get on with it and build a studio. They need a studio now. And I just did what had to be done to make that happen. And it's interesting because, you know, when COVID, like first I did some just free classes in the tennis court, but then, of course, COVID came that was shut down and I tried to do some online classes. But the people here, either they just don't have the internet, they don't have the capacity to live stream classes, or they just can't deal with that medium. They don't, you know, they don't, a lot of people don't do computer you know, 10 hours a day sort of thing. So there's only really maybe three or four that do those online classes. Everyone else is like, we just have to wait till there's a real studio again. We can't deal with this other medium thing. So that's why I'm going, well, come, let's, let's get it done now. We need it now. So your safe place got burned down, which is horrific. Where is your safe place now? Is it in the middle of being rebuilt? <laughs> well, I couldn't not do yoga for seven weeks, uh, seven months, clearly. So I'm virtually, this is the only place I get internet, obviously. So I've got my teacher that I, you know, do most with. He teaches a few online classes. So I'm trying to sort of square myself between the wardrobes and the bed and the mirror and the next thing and do a little bit of yoga there. And I practice by myself. And our neighbor here, um, so everything where we now in Waterloo, everything burned down. The only reason that this old house is still here and the sharing shit where we live 
is because my husband was here and saved it. But uh, six of our neighbours that left, everything could burn out. And our neighbour down there left, lost everything. Then his wife left him and then he ran over his dog. So I decided, well, we have to do make sure that you at least have yoga to keep you going. So with just a few students, we put on the wood stove and, you know, put the table away and twice a week do a little bit of yoga there. But it certainly meant for me that I had to, a, be okay to not have a safe space as such, like a physical safe space, like just make do with what is and the fact that dogs and kids can run in at any time, but also see that, you know, 50% of the safe space is the way you are inside when you are in that space. You know, it, it certainly helps to have a physical space that, you know, you can be without a phone, without interruption, without whatever, and that's, you know, energetically clean, it certainly helps, but it's not the only thing. If you have to, you can just go, all right, right here, right now, what can I do to make it a safe space? Yeah. And speaking about spaces, you know, so many people have lost their homes not long ago. And I I would say, I don't know if this is accurate, but the large majority of people would still be without homes because they haven't been rebuilt yet. What what is everyone doing to survive out in the country right now who has lost that? Well, I think the biggest problem actually wasn't so much with the bushfires. It doesn't stay with me here because, of course, it is big, but it's when suddenly the separation from other people happened because of COVID. That was a much bigger thing because mm. beforehand, you know, we had all this rescue centres or relief centres or whatever they were called and people could still like in Cubago at the showground people were camping until I don't know a month or two ago because they needed to talk they were together they 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 would cook together there was you know social workers coming in like there was community in a sense of we want to rebuild we want to get through this and then suddenly when like all, all the councils are gone. A really good friend of mine works for Anglicare in Kubagwa at the van and she goes, people come in and they need like a proper psychologist and and, they, and and I can just sit there and listen because I'm not really schooled. But she's there's nobody left that they can talk to. And she says so many people only come out now, six months after, they were just too stunned and traumatised to even reach out until now. But now there's no one left mm. to be reach too so I think yes on a physical basis of course it's shit without a house but if you've got purpose like if you had you know the building is starting to happen or your work is still there or whatever you could deal with that so I know quite a few families that you know they had good insurance it got cleaned up really early they've now built a shed they've got a plan they go on they seem to sort of okay but the ones where it's not such a clean picture, you know, that's when it's hard, where it's you don't really have, like you can live, I lived in a tent for four years, you know, you, you can deal with that. You can live without heating and stuff if everything else is okay. But if the, everything else is broken as well, you know, your, your job is insecure, mm. you can't talk to your friends, you can't do what you normally do to feel better, that's when it gets really hard. So. Yeah. So the bushfires and the enormous tragedy that that was has become 
it sounds like 10 times harder than what it could have been due yeah. to COVID. Yeah, but for sure. Yeah. Even just the energy in Cabago, yeah. like until COVID, I was going to build, be building Cabago no, no matter what. You know, I tried, looked nine different ways of building the studio there. And you could see, you know, the baking buddies were still baking and it, we're standing in front of the burnt buildings and people were planning and doing. And then when COVID happened, just everyone went like, <gasps> you know, because suddenly he couldn't do it. felt like he couldn't do that anymore to come together to rise up. And now... It's getting a little bit better again now, but it still feels a bit like a ghost town. And then this whole thing of, you know, nearly, oh, he made music last night. There was like three people in the house. They shouldn't have been there. They shouldn't have been there. So it nearly becomes like a, you know, a spy type thing where instead of that really great community that happened in the beginning. And I, I do think it can change again in this area because people are a little more grounded and, like sounds stupid but there's more space you know like for me for us personally mm -hmm. we've got a hundred acres here i mean we only have a one bedroom sharing shit that we all live in that's a bit you know cozy but we've got a hundred acres we can walk around there's a building right there we need to work on so we had a lot of stuff to do but if you have nothing to do you know if your house burned down and you're now living somewhere in a, you know, temporary thing in a different town and you're waiting for still the cleanup to happen and you can't work because your job's gone and there is no real, you know, I really think a big thing of what makes your life good is something to do, something to look forward to, you know, someone to be with. So if two of those things are gone, it's really hard to stay positive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think... Purpose and connection would arguably be the greatest coping tools at our disposal. Um, and f for everyone at the moment, connection is limited. Our greatest tool is limited at a time where we need it the most. Yeah. And for a lot of people in communities that need it, their purpose has been potentially halted, yourself included, or at, at very least changed. Um, and I don't think, you know, with the, it's almost unfortunate for two reasons that COVID happened after, after the bushfires. One is that it has disenfranchised, disempowered, um, and removed the spirits of people who needed that the most, but it's also taken the focus off the community that needed it most and made it back to everyone's for themselves you know because everyone in sydney and melbourne and all the capital cities who weren't affected uh we we were so invested with with rural australia when it was happening and then when covid struck everyone right you know rightfully or wrongfully but as a human does goes back i need to protect myself and my family and I think the the consciousness of what actually happened in this catastrophic event has been pushed to the side when we needed to grieve more because they were doing it by themselves. So really, really tough time. And it's only really hitting me now just how tough it is hearing it from you. And, you know, that's why I think for me it's like I can't, I believe that, you know, I'm not a person that could run a country or anything like that, but I can do little things one person at a time, you know. And for me, I think, you know, if I can get this open soon, hopefully, if it can just be a place where people can come to, whether they have a home or not, 
whether they have work or not, and just for two hours, however many times a week, they can come there, they can just be with themselves, they can cry or they can mourn or they cannot feel anything or they can talk with people afterwards or not, but they can just get out of what's happening out there into nature with connection with others and start to heal just a little bit, you know, just a little bit. Then from there you can start building up things again, you know. But I really believe everybody has to have a thing or a place or a time where they're allowed to just be, you know. They can be happy, they can be grieving, they can be in pain, they can be whatever, and they're allowed to just be. It's like a little little rest for the soul. I've heard you say a few times now during our chat, this whole concept of just a little bit, just a little bit. I think um, I think maybe Europeans are better at this than <laughs> Aussies. Um, we're very all or nothing thinkers for the most part. Uh, what would you say to someone who's like, if I can't solve it all right now, then what's the point? How do you get people to stay present and just take one bite a day? Well, I think that's why I chose this medium because you know and I love it when people come well I couldn't come to yoga I'm not flexible enough like it's like saying you're too dirty to have a bath like it doesn't matter where you start (laughs) right you just do a little bit but if you do and that's what I mean if you just do a walk you'll feel a little bit better if you just do whatever posture you'll feel a little bit better and then the accumulation of the little bits is that the big thing gets better you know and I very much was sitting on that edge for a very long time that I either was doing too much or not enough in my eyes, you know. So I know how easy it is to flip-flop, but then it goes so easy you go back into victim, you know, because I've this is my little, you know. I believe if you can look after yourself and make sure that you are happy and healthy, whatever that is that you need to do, that you're happy and healthy, then that just helps everybody around you to be happy and healthy. You know, the influence gets either way. I think if that's all we can do is look at yourself, put your own mask on first. From there you can go out and help others. Amen. Amen. Um, So I think the hard part is staying patient on that little bit, little bit journey. That's the hard part. Because what happens is you take a little bit, little bit, something bad happens and you're like, fuck it, throw in the towel, whether it be a new diet, exercise, grieving, rebuilding a house. Like I think the little bit by little bit is the right way, but it's hard sometimes. Yeah. And well, so I, how do you how do you find the resilience to get through? Well, I had, I had one of those moments yesterday because I don't know if you ever tried to do grants, but oh, my God. So... I reckon I'm about 20, maybe 30 grand short of finishing off out there, right? And so I'm looking at all the grants and I'm like, you know, this one doesn't quite work or the COVID grant doesn't work because if you, even though it's a small business grant, if you have less than $75,000 a year turnover, then you're not big enough to be a small business. And the next one, and then I was like, oh, it's a solar something grant, you know, efficiency solar grant. I'm like, well, how much more solar efficient does it get? I'm off grid, completely solar, first ever Bikram studio, right? Must be fitting into that box. Oh, but you can't <laughs> use it for solar panels. Like, so anyway, I had one of those moments. It's like, fucking out. So hard. You know, why does it have to be so hard? And then sometimes I just have to go and just call someone that, you know, I know really well. So it's like, okay, it's out now. It's okay. You know, I just, I think sometimes you have to just be okay to not be okay. 
You know, you don't have to always look perfect or be perfect or be super healthy or do everything right because I think that's in itself is a problem as well. You know, sometimes you just go, today I feel like shit. Today I really want to give up. Yeah. You know? And be okay with that. Yeah. Just got to be. And tomorrow morning you get up again. Just got to be. And take a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And do another little bit. Agreed. And by the way, grants are the worst. So I'm with you on that. They are the absolute worst. Um, but that's for another time. Uh, I think we're, we're I, I want to be conscious of how much time I'm, I'm taking from you. I think the last thing I just want to explore is, um, is on the concept of grieving and bushfires. How, how do you, you mentioned that people get stuck in their narrative talking and talking and talking about the bushfires because they're obviously being super, super affected by it. Um, what would your advice be to supporting someone who's in a situation like that and they just keep talking about their narrative? Well, it's interesting because my husband's got quite a bit of PTHD of being in the fires here. You know, he's like, as I said, he was here by himself saving, you know, nine buildings. And while it wasn't a fire bomb, it was still all on fire and he was by himself. Um, mm -hmm. And in the beginning, you know, if talking is a thing you feel you need to do, go to someone who actually knows what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like be brave enough to call up a helpline or a counsellor or whatever or whatever form you choose of someone who actually does it so you don't end up being the person that on the street tells it to every single person because that, as I said, I think it just creates its own little weird rhythm. Um, but also a big thing I from, from my experience with dealing, you know, with grief and stuff is that if you are brave enough to really go into that story, if it is, and really allow yourself to feel and go like, what's the worst thing that can happen? Where's the end? How far can it go out? Sometimes, as I said, it can just poof away or it can at least become something that has an edge. I think the problem with fear often is because mm. you're so afraid to go into it, you feel like it's a bottomless pit, but it's not. And um, in this radical forgiveness thing that I told you about, he always goes, okay, now feel that thing, you know, where's that emotion? And he says, put your hand on it, in your body, where's it? And then he takes us through all the steps and he goes, no, is it still there? And you go, actually, it's not, it's moved, you know? So it's that thing, mm. if you allow yourself to locate the feeling, to locate the fear, to go into it and just feel it. Because in the end, in that moment, that fear can't hurt you. That fire in this moment right now, it can't hurt you. So if you're brave enough to go into it, to really feel it, to just let it be, sometimes, you know, it's like facing your fear in a different sort of way. It'll shift. Mm. Yeah, it'll move. It'll loosen. And I don't know if that's your quote, someone else's or whatever, but I'm now stealing it, which is that when you feel you can find find its edge. Yeah. I love that. It does become a lot more tangible um, and it almost an emotion takes a shape when you look at it. That's scary yeah. when you can see it for all that it is. Um, but it's also, oh, now I can work with it because it has a form and a boundary. Um, so I, I agree with that. I think that's very sage and wise advice. I want to talk to you for another three and a half days, uh, but unfortunately we don't have that. 
Um, I do want to give a shout out to to you and your yoga studio. So if someone wanted to find it, uh, if they were driving through a country town, what's the name of it? Where is it located? And how can we see it on the internet? If you look up Bikram Yoga Sapphire Coast, like the stone, you'll find it. It's about half an hour from Bega. Fantastic. So if you're thinking about a country getaway, you can go and support our local community there. Um, and for peop- for someone that's truly on the ground, um, where can we donate to that still needs our, our help that you have found to be the best use of funds? Um, there is a Kubaga Bushfire Relief Fund and that goes straight to the people in Kubago and they give it out. Like funny enough, the lady that became world famous for, you know, yelling at the prime minister, she was also the neighbor that put out Mm -hmm. our rental house in town that started to go on fire. And I think she felt so embarrassed by, you know, her outburst that she has been working since that day, you know, seven days a week in this relief fence and helping people on the ground. You know, she, they have a real personal relationship with all the people that come in and what they need and, I'm sure that the funds get, you know, distributed in a good way. So, mm, okay, great. Um, well, Amory, thank you so much for an amazing discussion, and I'm sure this story will touch many people. And we look forward to keeping in in touch with you. Cool. Thanks, Mitch. <laughs>